Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and I have uh, the real pleasure to talk to two of the authors of the very new book, Deep Roots, How Slavery Still Shapes Southern Politics. The book is published by Princeton University Press, uh, and I have Matthew Blackwell and Maya Sen here today to talk about the book. Uh, Matt, you're there? Yep, yep. Hi, I'm here. Good. And Maya, you are as well. Um, Matt, maybe you'd like to start and just introduce yourself and also your other co-author, um, Avidit, who isn't, isn't with us today. And then Maya, then you can do the same. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so my name is Matt Blackwell. I'm an assistant professor of government <clears throat> at Harvard University. Uh, I study statistical methods and also uh, American politics. This Obviously, the slavery book is a big part of that. And then our third co-author who's not here is Avi Acharya, who's an assistant professor at Stanford University. Great. And Maya, how about yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Maya. I am an associate professor of public policy at the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. Uh, my research is focusing on American politics with a special focus on race and ethnic politics and also uh, judicial politics. I do a lot of work that uses the methodologies of political economy to look at inequalities in American politics. Yeah, the, the, the Mathis background shows up so much in this book. It's such an interesting and deeply researched book. It also has a beautiful cover. If, if there's a contest for amazing academic uh, book covers, of which many are not as nearly as beautiful or creative, this is one. So go out and take a look at the book cover. Um, I have this, this uh, theory that I'm working on that you can judge the quality of a book by the number of people thanked in the acknowledgement section. And, and using this theory, uh, your book is going to be a bestseller. Uh, you thank a lot of people. I hope um, you're right. <laughs> uh, uh, Matt, I, I wonder, maybe you can just start us off by talking a little bit. You don't have to talk about all those people that you thank that's in the book, but talk a, bit, a little bit about um, how the three of you came together uh, to, to write this book. And how, how, did this all, how did this all work? Yeah, sure. So the three of us, before we were in our current positions, we were all on faculty at the University of Rochester in the Department of Political Science. And, you know, when we were there, there was a great kind of group of junior faculty who were all uh, getting together on a regular basis and talking about work and talking about research and, and the different ideas that we had. And I think and, and also just about kind of what's going on in American politics at any given time. And I think me, Avi, and Maya all really hit it off and really were kind of felt it came to a realization that we, we kind of felt like American politics subfield uh, was really, really focused on things that were con- contemporary. You know, So what is the effect of a political mailer on someone's propensity to vote or something like that, which are all important questions. And we find that research really fascinating. Uh, but we were kind of, you know, we noticed that those things were relatively small, had relatively small impacts. And we thought that, you know, but we know that people have deeply held beliefs and there's these big differences between different regions of the country. And like, where could that come from? How could that, how, where do these, where do the big differences come from? And I think we kind of started to think about, well, maybe it's the, the history of the United States that has kind of led us to some of the 
the political cultures that we see uh, across the country so ingrained. And I think that was the, the 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 beginning seed. It was trying to figure out, you know, how did we how did we get to the place where we are today? Now, my you start the book by comparing two southern cities, uh, Greenwood, Mississippi, and Asheville, North Carolina. I wonder if you could describe um, you know, each of these places uh, and, and, and how the comparison between them really sets up one of the central questions of the book. Yeah. So we chose those two cities in part because they really illustrate, I think, quite well the puzzle that we address in the book, which is that one of those places, Green, like Greenwood, Mississippi, uh, it's actually located in the, the Southern Black Belt. Um, And the people who live there tend to be very conservative. And I'm actually speaking specifically about the whites who live there. Greenwood is actually a majority black city. So the whites who live there are actually fairly conservative. If you look at a place like Asheville, North Carolina, despite the fact that historic for portions of their history, they might have looked similar. We can talk for a second about ways in which they ended up not looking similar. Um, But Asheville is actually fairly progressive by Southern standards. So whites who live in Asheville are actually fairly liberal um, for, by, by Southern standards. Now, that sets up sort of the puzzle in the book, which is what explains kind of this divergence. What makes whites who live in places like Greenwood, Mississippi, more conservative? And what makes whites who live in Asheville, North Carolina, and other cities like it across the South comparatively more liberal? Now, I said they, they had some similarities in their history, they had some prominent differences and the prominent difference that we focus on in the book is the fact that places like Greenwood that were located in the Southern black belt. So by, by black belt, we basically just mean kind of this hook shaped area that extends from the Mississippi Delta Delta through Mississippi, Alabama into Georgia and South Carolina. Um, Greenwood, like many other places in that black belt had a very, very strong tradition of slavery. So going back to its founding, uh, it was the, its economy really revolved around the institution of slavery. And in Greenwood specifically, it was about the cultivation of cotton. And Greenwood is known as sort of the cotton capital of the United States. Um, it, was a, it was a huge uh, driving force in the development of the city. Asheville is really different. Asheville is more in the um, kind of more mountainous, more temporarily cool. Um, it never really had the kind of terrain that was well suited for large scale agriculture, such as cotton or tobacco. Um, and so its economy just moved in a very, very different direction. It never had a high prevalence of slavery the way that Greenwood did. Um, that is all to say that these two cities sort of illustrate kind of different paths at different places across the South kind of experienced. Some places were more like Greenwood and really relied extensively on the institution of slavery and other places were more like Asheville and did not, and developed kind of other industries and, and um, moved in a different direction. And we think that that helps explain some of the differences in political culture that we see today. So we think those juxtaposing those two cities, which is what we do in the introduction of the book, kind of sets up basically the explanation that the rest of the book then seeks to provide about why these places differed in terms of their political geography, their political culture. Yeah. And, and Matt, I think that for a lot of people, this 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 question, this this um, what what has interested you, um, uh, many people would share it, but but they wouldn't have the clear argument for what links the past and the present together. Um, I wonder if you could briefly describe the mechanism that that you three are arguing for um, that collects the practice connects the practice of slavery in the past uh, to the politics of today. 
Sure. Yeah. I mean, the I think it's you know part of this is the the practice of slavery, and a lot of it is the the kind of the demise of slavery in the South, kind of in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, and kind of what we argue in the book is that the the economic structures that have been in place in the South in these areas where slavery had been so prevalent uh, was so important to the Southern planters, the Southern white planters, that when slavery was abolished, they really sought to recreate that that economic system using uh, kind of more localized and uh, and sometimes more informal modes of oppression that would but have the say had some similar uh, consequences and this was incredibly racialized but it was a slight difference than before the Civil War when there was slavery when slavery was kind of a, a state level or even a region level endeavor a lot of the stuff that we see that's happening, in the postbellum period, we see that uh, things become more localized. So uh, that enforcement of certain kinds of black codes, which were a series of laws that were uh, designed to prevent uh, black uh, people in the South from uh, full economic and social mobility, were f- enforced a lot of times at the local level. Um, a lot of the, the, the greatest support for Jim Crow laws came from the Southern Black Belt, the whereas people in the upcountry, the the areas that had relatively fewer slaves, were uh, were very deeply skeptical of some of these uh, these changes, these kind of the the Jim Crow era laws and state constitutions that uh, were uh, had the effect of disenfranchising black voters, and so this kind of the the series of uh, kind of informal and formal oppressive systems that kind of came up in response to the demise of slavery, uh, kind of after Reconstruction ended, uh, are really I think the link between the economic system of slavery in the 19th century into the kind of Jim Crow uh, localized Jim Crow era in the 20th century. And by that time, we're talking about people that are still around today. So people that were were born, uh, say, before the white primary was ended in the 1940s. Those, all of those people are still alive today uh, and obviously have kids and grandkids that, that may live in the area. So I think you know, p- part of this is the idea that there was economic incentives that people were responding to in the late 19th and early 20th century to, op- to repress African-Americans in the South. Uh, and then another part of it is that even after those incentives were kind of more or less demolished by mechanization of slavery, or sorry, mechanization of the cotton industry, and by changes to the federal legislation, we a lot of what has the persistence comes from the kind of parent to child transmission of beliefs that we we can kind of detect in uh, in racial attitudes over the course of the twentieth century. So the idea is that over time. Um, that, that families pass down these beliefs and, and it doesn't just go away over a short period of time. Yeah. I, can I give actually an example of that, that I, that I found really persuasive. So in the course of writing the book, one of the real treats for us was to engage pretty deeply in the work of historians and sociologists, uh, which sometimes is quantitative political scientists. I think we don't do enough of, but um, in our case, I think there were some really rich memoirs and um, historical narratives that really illustrated this pathway that Matt just described. Um, one of the ones that I found really shocking and, and, and surprising um, was the extent to which children were actually incorporated into the rituals of racial violence um, in the South through the early 20th century. And this is, like Matt said, this is not something that was so far back in our past. In fact, um, this extended into the 30s and 40s. There's an example that we discuss in the book of a lynching that happened in 1935 
just again, not that long ago, um, where the person who was lynched, uh, this is in Fort Lauderdale uh, in Florida, a person was lynched and as part of the lynching, uh, the community actually incorporated uh, children, local white children to watch and observe. And there are several photographs of this particular lynching where they're very graphic. You can see uh, sort of the body dangling from a tree, which is, you know, obviously a jarring image in and of itself. But in the background, just below the, the feet, you can actually see several children kind of standing there smiling uh, as if this was part of kind of like a holiday, like kind of a, a day off from school that they got to celebrate and participate in this. Um, the children in that picture, actually, they look like they're about four or five. So that would make them, you know, sort of in like maybe their mid mid 80s. Um, so it's quite likely, as Matt said, that they're actually still alive. And if they themselves are not alive, then it's very, very likely that they have children and grandchildren who are still alive who who maybe heard these stories. And it's it's really hard to to think that that wouldn't deeply affect the people involved and and shape how people thought about kind of a racial hierarchy and, and race and race relations. Yeah, you mentioned the book also, even something simple as children's stories uh, reflecting some of these beliefs. Now, now, Maya, I wonder if you could continue. Now, while you, while you do uh, use these these other sources, uh, much of the book is is relying on a quantitative analysis. And, you know, even for, I think for the person who said, you know, I, I understand that the past matters, but um, there's so many other things that must get in the way that the you know that this the the direct connection um, you couldn't possibly find statistically, but that that's what you go about doing in the book. And in chapter three, you you take on one of the the big questions in the book, uh, which is whether areas with high concentrations of slavery in the eighteen hundreds have predictable politics today. I wonder if you could describe for us um, what you found about um, ideology and and particular policy positions as they relate to. Uh, this the um, uh, practices of the past. Yeah, sure. So, so this really speaks to I think the core findings of the book. And once we discovered these basic relationships, we knew there was a deeper story there that we had to explore and we had to dig into. So, just to give you a sense of what we found using the quantitative data. Um, so, so first we looked at slavery in 1860, which is basically just on the cusp of the Civil War, and this is uh, the 1860 U.S. Census, so it's the last census taken before uh, slavery is dismantled by the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863. So we look at uh, the relationship between slavery in 1860, as captured by that U.S. Census, and we see how it predicts political attitudes today. And the we have several findings in this. So I'll just kind of describe just a few of them to give you a flavor of this. Um, so, for example, we see that slavery in 1860. So, so uh, uh, slavery in 1860, uh, obviously uh, no slaves today, so it's, it's historical. Um, actually, predicts uh, positively uh, a white person, a white person's uh, party affiliation. So let me rephrase that to make that a little bit more clear. So a white person um, living in an area that had a high prevalence of slavery in the historical period in the 1860s is today more likely to identify as a Republican. Um, in addition, so that's just sort of on partisanship. Um, in addition, a white person living in a place that had a high prevalence of slavery in 1860 is more likely to oppose affirmative action or policies that we would describe as affirmative action policies. Um, that person's also more likely to express sentiments that political scientists would describe as racially resentful. 
um, that person is also more likely to express cooler feelings in general toward African-Americans as opposed to whites. Um, interestingly, we started digging into this quite deeply because we were, we were kind of interested as to whether this was just sort of an overall more conservative leaning or whether this was something specific about race and racial attitudes. So interestingly, we do not find that a white person living in areas that historically had a high prevalence of slavery are more conservative on non-race related policy issues. So we do not find that they're more skeptical about climate change, for example. And we do not find that they're less inclined to um, agree strongly with reproductive rights for women or to oppose same-sex marriage. We do not find differences on those sorts of issues where we find these differences and where slavery really has sort of a predictive impact and we think a causal impact is when it comes to things that have a strong connection to racial attitudes. So race-related policy positions, um, ideological positions, and partisanship is where we find the the, the real striking findings. Yeah, it's, it's just amazing. I, sorry to interrupt, but um, the, the, the differences that you find and the fact that they, they hold, even when you're um, uh, comparing to other conservatively conservative positions, I think are just, um, so incredible. Um, and, and in the, the book you, you, I think I, I imagine because of that, you, you also address some of the counter explanations to some of these findings. And in chapter five, you describe the, um, antebellum folkways hypothesis. Um, I, I wonder if maybe you guys could just describe that hypothesis and um, what you did to discover or to, to either refute or support this hypothesis and how you dealt with the, sort of the, the other competing explanations for, for the, the very, very interesting and, and sort of shocking findings in, the, in, in that analysis, Maya, that you just uh, described. Uh, yeah. So, the, the, so, there, so we, when we first found that simple relationship, I think we knew that that we had something that we needed to explore and we needed to figure out why we were seeing the fact that slavery in 1860 was predictive of people's attitudes today. And so we immediately started thinking of explanations. You know, one possibility is the one that we ultimately uh, came around to thinking, which is that we think that slavery played a big role in this and slavery actually changed people's attitudes and has had a persistent impact. That's actually what we think, but, but we really had to engage with these other possible explanations. And the first one that I think came to people's minds and certainly was something that we thought about was this idea that maybe what we're picking up is just the fact that, that places that developed and came to rely extensively on the institution of slavery, those are simply places where people had pre-existing attitudes about a racial hierarchy and had racial attitudes that that were then carried on, right? So this isn't this isn't something that sort of developed around the, the the time of the years leading up to the Civil War and was exacerbated by its collapse. This is something that has always existed, and this is uh, consistent with arguments that have been made about um, where people came from in England and Scotland and where they settled and the attitudes that they carried with them. And so this is why we call this the antebellum folkways hypothesis, this idea that, that we're just picking up something that predated um, the institution of slavery. And in fact, maybe these attitudes actually uh, determined which places uh, like came to rely extensively on the institution of slavery. So we actually did a fair number of, analyses and historical research to try to figure out um, if 
this argument was really what was explaining what was going on. And ultimately, we found this argument to not really be helpful in terms of explaining regional differences today, in part because, and this is something that historical records are very, very um, consistent about, um, because racism was actually fairly uniform across the entire country in, in the years before the Civil War. There was not much disagreement about the institution of slavery at, at a state or even regional level. Um, places that were not reliant on slavery were supportive of the institution. Uh, people who White people who did not themselves hold slaves were supportive of the institution, I think in large part because uh, slaveholding was a path to wealth accumulation. So if you as a white person did not hold slaves yourself, you actually supported the institution because you saw it as a way for you to get wealthy. So you aspire to that. Um, one of the ways that I understand it, one of the most useful analogies is it's sort of the way that we view home ownership today. It's like a path, sort of a natural path to wealth. Um, I, th- I think that's a persuasive analogy to the way that white people saw white people living in the South saw slavery in the antebellum period. It was a path to, it was a pathway to wealth and a way to get rich. And so even if you didn't hold slaves yourself, you actually supported the institution because it was, it was economically uh, a path, an upward mobility path. So we actually don't see um, the political cleavages on this dimension, on this uh, low slaveholding, high slaveholding dimension, the way that we really see develop postbellum. So it's in the postbellum period where you see these huge cleavages develop kind of emerge in the data between places that were reliant on the institution of slavery versus places that weren't. And if you, if you think about it, that actually makes a lot of sense, right? If I'm a, if I'm a white person who maybe aspired to slaveholding as a path to wealth accumulation, and all of a sudden that institution no longer existed, why would I support the interests of the former slaveholding areas? Right. I, I no longer have that incentive to support the oppression of African-Americans and sort of a, these informal norms because I no longer can personally benefit from that. Um, so it actually makes uh, a bit of sense to us, especially in light of the work that's been done by historians and economists on these points. And we actually see this, uh, I should add that we also see this really clearly in the data. Um, so we see that uh, these political cleavages were really like not quite there in the antebellum period. They really develop in the years leading up to the Civil War, and then boom, you know, in the years of Reconstruction and immediately following after, you see huge differences emerge between places that were former slaveholding places and places that were not. They just really diverge in terms of who they supported politically, the issues that were discussed, the votes that were taken kind of in this critical turn of the century period on these uh, state constitutions that were all about black codes and things like that. That's when you see these real significant divergences in the postbellum period. Now, now, Matt, these are, um, I think most would agree, um, really interesting findings, but also quite disturbing. Um, I wonder if you could talk about, um, so you, you talk towards the end of the book about the things that, that uh, the interventions that, that, uh, that communities have tried, not all communities, but, but there have been national interventions, um, and, and to, to, ad- to address these issues. These, you know, this isn't all surprising. Um, 
you know, so so have these interventions worked in the past? And, you know, is there any hope for future interventions, um, given one of the takeaways here is that the that history is so important that we, we can't escape it simply by time? Um, is there hope in the book? Are there interventions that uh, you look to that that could address these things? Yeah, I think there I mean, I think there are two important points to to, to hit with this on this point. You know, one is that uh, you know, just well, one thing that, that is to make ex- extremely clear here is that the kinds of relationships that we're finding um, are about the relative positions of, uh, of people that live in the high slaving hold areas versus the low slave holding areas. And so the, 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 the relative alignment of who is more conservative and who is more liberal uh, has been fairly persistent over the, the course of the late 19th and early 20th century. I think what the one thing to, to note about that is that's not to say that that racial attitudes have been fixed in place in these places. It, as, as a rule, America has gotten a lot more racially liberal. The South has also gotten more racially liberal. It's just that the people, as far as that we can measure, uh, the, the, it's the, the relative alignment of those, the kind of persistence in the in the the structure and the culture of those relationships has been pretty persistent. But it is it's surprising that that's the case when. Uh, as you said, there have been large federal interventions into uh, Southern life that have really changed those relationships on other dimensions, right? So before, before things like the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act, there were large disparities between the high slave South and the low slave South in terms of uh, black-white wage gaps about, uh, about voting uh, and registration for African-Americans versus whites. Uh, about educational attainment in those areas. And across all of those things, what we find over the course of the 20th century, after some of these interventions like the Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act, we see that not only has there been a, a level shift so that you know uh, the relative status of African Americans in the South has gotten better, uh, but we also find an attenuation of the relationship between slavery and those those things, right? So there's no we no longer see a relationship between slavery and the black white gap in education, or we see a much lower relationship with things like the wage gap, uh, and certainly voting has gotten a lot, but changed almost overnight before and after the Voting Rights Act. So that that really shows us that when the federal government can go in and and actually do something, uh, it actually tends to uh, have a pretty big impact on these kinds of relationships. But I think for us, it's still, we, we don't see that same kind of attenuation on these attitudinal measures. And so I think it's an open question and something that I think should be explored in the future about, well, how how can those things, do, will those things attenuate just over the long term? Are we just in a very slow uh, radiation decay where things will just get more and more similar because of people moving and the, just the people will, uh, the natural kind of population overturn and things like that? Or uh, is will this kind of persist into the long term, and we need other kinds of interventions to think about in terms of uh, kind of getting it to a point where, uh, at least on this dimension of kind of racial attitudes, uh, America is a little bit more united in terms of how it views uh, those those issues. Yeah, again, the book is Deep Roots: How Slavery Still Shapes Southern Politics. Uh, the book is published by Uni- uh, Princeton University Press. Uh, you've been hearing from the authors, Matt and Maya. Thank you both very much, and Avi, thank you for your uh, being the lead author as well. So thank you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah.